Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. A note, this episode contains descriptions of graphic violence. Listener's discretion is advised. So, Mossad's mission to assassinate the Butcher of Latvia was a success. It achieved its objective. It changed how we think about the Holocaust and genocide law. And it changed the lives of countless people, including the people you've met in the last 10 episodes. But the Zucker's operation barely scratches the surface of what Mossad has done over the years. In its more than 70 years of existence, Mossad has been, by its own definition, quote, involved in special operations and activity in the service of the state of Israel, such as the pursuit of Nazi criminals. Mossad has also rescued Jews in the diaspora from dangerous situations and resettled them in Israel. The most famous of these operations was the 1984 covert evacuation of approximately 8,000 Ethiopian Jews out of Sudan in Operation Moses. Mossad also tells us that they are, quote, a key factor in the war against terror directed at Jewish and Israeli targets abroad. So for this episode, I want to look at some of the most important and spectacular operations the agency has carried out. I want to tell you about some missions you've probably never heard of, but that shape the Middle East and even our world. I'm Stephen Talty, and this is Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. Lebanon's Hezbollah says Israel assassinated one of its top leaders. He was executed by a tiny bomb hidden in a mobile cellular telephone. There's a time for diplomacy, and there's probably a time for direct action. Nobody would say that it's a simple matter. And that's the moral dilemma. Can you work with these people to save your own skin? Episode 11, Mossad's Greatest Hits and Misses. The Jet. Let's start with an operation in which the target wasn't even human. 
1963, the Israelis decided they had to have a MiG. At the time, the MiG was the most advanced Soviet fighter plane, and the latest model, the MiG-21, had been purchased by Israelis' neighbors and enemies, Egypt, Syria, and Iraq. If it came to war, Israel would be facing these fighter jets in the skies. They had to know everything about them. So forget about stealing blueprints or getting blurry photos from inside some hangar. They wanted to steal an entire plane. There was a problem, however. If you didn't have the plane, you couldn't fly it. So Mossad would have to convince an Arab pilot to steal the plane for them. That was much harder than just going after the hardware. The mission began in the early 60s. A Mossad agent named Gene Thomas offered an Egyptian pilot $1 million to hijack his own aircraft and fly it to Israel. That would be about $9 million today. It was a fortune. But the pilot said no. And then he went to his bosses and told them about the offer. Thomas, the Mossad agent, along with four others, were arrested. Months later, Thomas and two of his accomplices were hung, while the others received extensive prison terms. It was a complete failure. But for Mossad, the MiG was worth another try. In the mid-1960s, they moved the mission's focus away from Egypt to Iraq and actually tried to convince two pilots to get in the plane and fly it. Again, the pilots refused. Finally, in 1966, an Iraqi-born Jew named Yusuf got in touch with Mossad. This is one of the strengths of the agencies. In countries around the world, there have been examples of Jews willing to help Mossad. I asked Keith Melton about this. Melton is the intelligence historian and author of several books on espionage we've heard from in previous episodes. At one time, the total of number of intelligence officers they had and this was 20 or 30 years ago, it was only 24 officers. So mm. they, they had a very small service, but they had the ability to look for other Jewish supporters virtually anywhere they could go in the world. If you needed a check cashed, if you needed to arrange a safe house, if you needed a rental car, they had an established contact within the synagogue, within a group, in almost any country they could go. So this guy, Yusuf, told Mossad about this other guy named Redfa. Redfa was a pilot who flew the MiG-21. He was a Christian whose religion had caused his military career to stall out. Only Muslims were getting promoted. So Redfa was pissed off. He was also angry that he'd been forced to fight against Iraqi Kurds whom he had no problem with. He was ready to turn against Iraq. Mossad sent a female agent to entice Redfa into the deal. She got him to travel to Europe, where he could meet with her handlers. There, they offered the pilot $1 million, full Israeli citizenship, and a good job. Redfa had some conditions. Knowing that Iraq's government would take revenge on his relatives, he demanded that Israel get them out of the country at the same time he was stealing the plane. Mossad agreed. But there were obstacles. Redfa's superiors didn't trust him. He was considered a troublemaker, and he was a Christian. They only allowed him to fly a MiG equipped with two small fuel tanks, which would theoretically prevent him from taking it all the way to Israel. If he crashed on the way to Tel Aviv, the mission would be a failure. Mossad made the final arrangements. Redfa's wife, who had no idea what was going on, was given tickets to Paris with her children. There, she was contacted by Mossad and told the whole story. She threw a fit, threatening to go to the Iraqi embassy and tell them everything. But her handlers finally convinced her to agree to the plan. Redfa's other family members were secretly escorted to Iraq's Iranian border, where Kurdish guerrillas guided them to safety. From there, they were taken to Israel. But Redfa was still in Iraq. Finally, he was given permission to take the plane up on a training mission. He pointed the nose toward Jordan. Air traffic control in Jordan contacted the Iraqis. 
It was a MiG flying over their territory. What was going on? The Iraqis, not imagining anything was wrong, told them their pilot was just getting some airtime in with the MiG. Redford turned the plane toward Israel. When he finally landed, it was found that the two small gas tanks only had a few drops of fuel left. The MiG was put to use. Israeli pilots trained against it, learned how to fight it in the air. The next year, 1967, Israel and Syria went into battle over the Golan Heights. It was the Israeli mirages against the MiG-21s. Israel supplied this film, reportedly showing the dogfight in the sky between their mirage jets and Syria's Russian-built MiGs. The cameras were mounted on the Israeli fighters and recorded these stark air battle kills. Israel shot down six of the Syrian planes and lost none of their own. I mean, that they could get an Iraqi pilot? I mean, that's not easy to do. That's Robert Baer, a former CIA case officer and author of many books on espionage. The movie Syriana was based on one of Baer's books, and the character played by George Clooney was based on him. I mean, we had a pilot that defected to Japan, a MiG pilot. We got one of the airplanes as well. But, you know, getting hard equipment like that and figuring out with the avionics and the radar and the rest of it was extremely important for them. And it was a worthwhile operation. It was was quite amazing. What interests me about this mission is the human aspect. Getting an agent to betray his country is hard, but getting them to leave their country is even harder. Look how difficult it was to get the butcher out of Brazil. Some espionage sources find their lives aren't really disrupted. Their children stay in their schools. Their wives or husbands are oblivious. But Redfa had to give up everything and move his extended family out of their homeland. It's really something of a miracle Mossad was able to find someone like him and to convince him to make the leap to Israel. I asked Robert Baer about using someone's emotions to get what you need. Well, you, it, it, it's helpful to go after oppressed minorities anywhere in the world. I mean, if you look at the KGB, most, a lot of the defectors were from Ukraine. A lot of, you know, Israeli sources in Europe were Jewish who sympathized with Israel and its existence. And the same way with Christians who were oppressed and had no chance of ever, you know, holding positions of power. And that's not to mention, you know, once these Islamic groups came and started pressing them, that they would gravitate to the United States or, or to Israel. Mio had played on the butcher's emotions brilliantly. And now the Israelis had done it again. The Engineer. Now let me take you to the 1990s. Sometimes Mossad targets terrorists, sometimes it's political operatives, and sometimes it's people who betrayed their country. It's rare that the agency goes after a technician, but the engineer wasn't like other technicians. Yahya Ayash was the number one bomb maker for Hamas. Hamas is the Palestinian Sunni Islamic militant fundamentalist organization. Ayash's nickname was the engineer, and he was a master of building explosives. His skill is even more impressive because dynamite, which is a favorite of bomb makers for its stability and power, was hard to get in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, where Yash did his work. So he used a mix of acetone and detergent, ingredients found easily in many household cleaners. When you put them together, they make acetone peroxide. This stuff is powerful, but it's also highly unstable. In fact, it's called the Mother of Satan. You can guess why. People who work with the Mother of Satan usually don't live very long. But Ayash had an extensive and impressively lethal career. Well, I mean, the Israelis went after arms dealers, and especially ones that were supplying Iraq. They were very interested in the people who like who could make airplane bombs and they went after them some of these people were assassinated in jordan and the rest of it i mean they essentially eviscerated the palestinians the leadership as well as the technicians 
That's Robert Baer again. Ayash built bombs for Hamas suicide attacks. The Mahola Junction bombing in 1993, the Afula bus massacre in 1994. It was at lunchtime when the bomb went off, cutting down shoppers waiting at a bus stop in Afula town center. It's believed that the bomber himself was among the eight who died. The attack was timed to mark the end of the Islamic mourning period for the victims of the Hebron massacre. Whoever planned the bombing took plenty of casualties, at least 50 people injured, many of whom suffered... The Dizengoff Street bus massacre, also in 1994, at the time, the deadliest suicide bombing in Israeli history, with 22 civilians killed and 50 injured. It had happened in Dizengoff Street, the city's commercial heart, and a place where people normally sit in cafes and relax. Today, though, the bloodied survivors and those in shock stumbled onto the pavement as passers-by came to their aid. Ayash was also behind the Hadera Central Station Massacre, again in 1994, and many more. Hamas claimed responsibility for the deadliest terrorist attack in Israel for 16 years. Police combed the wreckage, trying to prove their hunch that the person who took so many lives was a suicide bomber. The engineer was killing Israelis inside Israel, civilians, right in the heart of the country. He later branched out and built bombs for other groups, including Islamic Jihad. He was like a one-man bomb factory. Mossad had to get him out of the picture and to cut off the supply of explosives for these attacks. The agency worked with Shin Bet, the internal security agency on the mission. They even had the cooperation of the Palestinian Authority, the official Palestinian government body that controls the Gaza Strip and West Bank, in tracking Ayash's movements. The break came when the agents realized that Ayash kept returning to a certain apartment, owned by a buddy from his childhood days. This childhood friend, the Israelis had worked with his uncle. They knew him, and they blackmailed him into cooperating with the operation. The agents gave the uncle a cell phone. They told him they'd placed a bug inside so they could tap into Ayash's conversations. What they didn't tell him was there was also 15 grams of something called RDX inside. RDX has been used as an explosive since World War II. It has no smell, which makes it perfect for jobs like this. Ayash worked with explosives. If he smelled anything, he might get suspicious. So the uncle gets the phone and gives it to his nephew, Ayash's buddy. The Israelis knew that Ayash often talked on one of the nephew's phones. They were hoping that would be the case again. They began monitoring all the calls in and out of the nephew's number. The monitoring was done from a small airplane that circled above the target. At 8 a.m. one January morning in 1996, a call came through. The agents listening in recognized the voice. It was Ayash's father. The call was relayed from the phone to the airplane flying above to an Israeli outpost nearby. The second voice on the line was confirmed. It was the engineer. A signal was sent across the cell phone connection and the phone exploded, killing Ayash instantly. The most hated man in Israel, a Palestinian terrorist, Yahya Ayash, known as the engineer, was killed in the Gaza Strip on Friday. He was executed by a tiny bomb hidden in a mobile cellular telephone. He tried to use this telephone was exploding and uh, destroyed the right side of his head. How many people killed in this accident? Only Yahya Ayash. And did you accuse the... We are investigating uh, the case and... This is how then-opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu framed the news. If it's true that uh, one of the world's most vicious killers, a person who's been responsible for blowing up women and children and babies, uh, has been eliminated, I don't think anyone should uh, shed a tear of sorrow. Uh, I think uh, uh, equally that it's important to send a message, and I think such a message has been sent, to all uh, his 
followers, all would-be terrorists, that Israel's long arm would reach them, that there is a price for terrorism. The Ayash operation reminds me a bit of Mio's work during the Zucker's mission. It was technician versus technician, in the same way that Mio went mano a mano against the butcher. The nerd aspect of espionage is often a sideline. If you go to the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., they have small exhibits on the technology of spying, with tiny cameras, the Enigma machine, things like that. But here, the tech was the whole deal. Ayash knew bombs, but he never suspected that Mossad would be skilled enough to hide one inside a cell phone. The level of sophistication, of precision, was a hallmark of the agency, doing more with less. Hey, this is Stephen Talty, the host of this podcast, Good Assassins Hunting the Butcher. This podcast project came out of my work on a related book called The Good Assassin. If you want to explore other parts of this story, check it out. It's not just a book version of the podcast. I spend time on different aspects of the mission. There are chapters diving into World War II history that we didn't cover in the podcast. And the book works as a kind of companion to the listening experience. You can purchase a copy of The Good Assassin on Amazon, Apple Books, and on bookshop.org. Thanks. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. The Scientist. For this one, let's go inside Syria. 
For years, Mossad and the Israeli government had wanted to know if Syria, which had been hostile to their Jewish neighbors for decades, had a nuclear program. They couldn't break through the security that the Syrians had put around their atomic research. Was there anything going on? Were they building plants? Were they thinking of building bombs? For Israel, the nuclear option is the nuclear option. If any one of their enemies gets the bomb, it could mean the end of their country. I asked Robert Baer about nukes and how they figure into the mindsets of spy agencies. Yeah, it goes back to the Second World War when Hitler was planning to use a nuclear bomb on New York City. I mean, it was just on paper, it never went anywhere. But they're more mythical than they are real. But there's something to think about. You know, you can aerosolize all sorts of toxins and spread them over New York City. And that's certainly something the Israelis are worried about. Or putting a tactical nuke on the end of a scud and firing in Tel Aviv. This is why they're going after Iran right now. By the way, it's just quite extraordinary, these operations they pulled off in Iran. I just thought, I never thought anyone could do these things. But clearly the Israelis have put a lot of effort and a lot of brains on, you know, on this problem. But places like Iran were considered the top priority. Everyone knew that the Iranians were trying for a bomb. As for Syria, it was on the back burner for Israel. Few believed they would take the risk. But Mossad started noticing mysterious things happening inside Syria. Ships would leave ports in Asia and arrive in Syria with unknown cargoes. There were convoys of trucks crisscrossing the country, carrying something. A Pakistani nuclear scientist, A.Q. Khan, traveled to Damascus for talks. But talks about what? There was no evidence on the ground that anything was happening. Israel's spy satellites were picking up nothing. Still, some people at Mossad had an uneasy feeling. But they were in the minority. One guy Mossad kept an eye on was Ibrahim Othman, who was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission of Syria. If anyone knew what was going on, it was Othman. In December 2006, Mossad got word that Othman would be traveling to a European city. The Syrians had given him a fake passport, but the Israelis knew how to track him. Mossad didn't want to kill him necessarily, but they wanted to get inside his head. So as soon as Othman landed in Europe, the agency had eyes on him. At the airport, agents watched him get off the plane and head to a hotel. There were about a dozen operatives involved in the operation. Once they found out what hotel he was staying at and which room, they got a team inside. They planted listening devices and then got out. From their bugs, the agency learned Othman was planning to do some shopping. European cities have goods you can't get in Syria, so he was planning a day to blow some money. Once he left the hotel, operatives broke into his room. On the desk was a laptop. Great. Maybe there was something valuable on the hard drive. But the agents didn't have time to steal the computer, bring it to their base, and download all the files. So what do you do? One of the team members was a computer expert. He installed software which let the agency track Othman's activities on the computer without the Syrian knowing it. They put the program on the hard drive where it was invisible, cleaned up, and left. The data started to come in from Othman's laptop, and it was astonishing. There were maps, there were blueprints for a nuclear plant, there were even pictures of the construction in various stages, and finally, a snapshot of a guy who looked East Asian. When Mossad ran the photo through its computers, it turned out the guy was a nuclear official from North Korea. The Syrians were going nuclear in a big way, and nobody had known about it. Mossad went to work. They sent a team inside Syria to collect soil samples and other evidence from the building site. When it came back, there was no doubt. Syria was on the path to a bomb. Mossad and the Israeli Defense Forces began planning Operation Outside the Box. On September 6, 2007, a fleet of 10 F-15 fighter planes lifted off from inside Israel. 
Israel had seized control of Syria's radar and air defenses and hid any sign of the coming attack. The F-15s approached the site. When the pilots were above the target, they released their payloads. The bomb struck the building and the plant was destroyed. The attack had succeeded. Syria abandoned its nuclear program. The wrong man. In 1972, Mossad was thrust into the spotlight when Palestinian terrorists stormed the residence of the Israeli team at the Summer Olympics in Munich and took 11 Israelis hostage. Eight members of the faction of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, known as Black September, barricaded themselves inside the athletes' apartments and negotiated for days with German authorities. Nearly 500 German security police have now sealed off the village and are mounting heavy machine guns in the square. They are keeping cameramen and television reporters and spectators well away. The girls have they demanded the release of 234 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails, which the Israeli government refused. When the terrorists and their hostages were transported to a nearby NATO airbase, where they were supposedly going to be flown to Cairo, disaster struck. A botched German ambush resulted in the murder of the nine remaining Israeli athletes and coaches, as well as the deaths of the terrorists. Despite a few bad decisions by judges, some disappointments and petty mistakes, the Munich Olympics were on the way to becoming the pleasantest Olympics because the West Germans worked to make them so. Today, one observer gave them a new name, the Bloody Olympics. Altogether, 17 people were slaughtered yesterday, two in the Olympic Village and the other 15 in the shootout at the airport. It was a catastrophe for the Olympics, for the Germans, and for the Israelis. Few doubted that the government in Jerusalem would respond and that Mossad would be at the sharp point of the sword. Here's how Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir explained it. Innocent lives are always at stake. The question is, can innocent Israeli lives become a commodity that groups of men and women can just do with them whatever they like. Nobody would say that it's a simple matter. Of course not. But look what happens. These men demand the release from prison of men who participated in the killing of our people. But they say openly. They make a statement, now they'll start all over again. But it means that people are set free When everybody knows that what they intend to do at the first opportunity, they will kill more Israelis. It's a difficult problem. I don't say it's easy. But uh, Israel cannot say, well, as long as it involves Israelis, uh, it's all right. Golda Meir quickly approved Operation Wrath of God a covert Mossad operation to hunt down and kill the planners of the Munich massacre. Mossad began their reprisals in 1973. There was an assassination in Rome, a bomb placed in a telephone in Paris, another planted under a bed in Cyprus, and a third that detonated under a car seat. There was a spectacular military raid in Lebanon using Zodiac boats and agents disguised as women. All found their targets. But the mastermind of the Munich terror operation still eluded Mossad. That was Ali Hassan Salome, nicknamed the Red Prince. Salome was believed to be the operations chief for Black September and the man who'd planned Munich. The Israelis put him near the top of the list of targets. Mossad traced Salome to Lillehammer, a beautiful ski resort town in central Norway. They sent an elite squad 
15 agents, and even the head of Mossad, Zvi Zamir. Some reports have said the team came from Caesarea, the same unit that Mio and Yosef Yariv belonged to. The agency didn't tell the Norwegians what they were up to, which was standard operating procedure. The fewer people who know, the lower possibility of a leak. Once in Lillehammer, the Mossad agents began following a man they believed to be a courier, an intermediary between the Red Prince and Black September. Posing as tourists, they followed the man wherever he went. On one of his errands, the courier headed to a local swimming pool. There, he met a dark-haired man. The agents studied the man. They had practically memorized the few photos of Salome that were available. Just like with Herbert Zucker's, they were comparing archival pictures with a man in the field. And just like with Zucker's, the two matched. They believed they'd found the Red Prince. The operatives acted quickly. They followed the target as he moved through Lillehammer. The next day, he met with a blonde woman, apparently a Norwegian. The two went to see a movie together and then caught a bus. The operatives tailed them closely as the pair alerted the driver to their stop, then got off the bus and began walking, apparently toward the house they shared. After the bus pulled away, the kill team struck. They shot the man 13 times. He fell to the pavement, the blonde woman calling for help. The agents quickly disappeared. It was a clean operation, fast, with no bystanders killed. Except it wasn't. The man that Mossad had executed in the quiet Norwegian town wasn't the Red Prince at all. His name was Ahmed Bushiki, a Moroccan waiter. The woman who was pregnant at the time was his wife, Taril. It had been a horrible mistake, and now an innocent man was dead. It was the first murder in Lillehammer in 36 years. The kill team left Norway almost immediately. But six other Israelis, who lingered after the hit, were caught and arrested. One of them apparently broke down under questioning and revealed the entire plan to police. It was one disaster after another. The Israelis had done what they always accused their enemies of, killed someone who'd done nothing to them. Now they faced the consequences. The agency was embarrassed. Five agents went on trial in Norway and were sent to prison. It took almost 25 years for Mossad to admit its mistake and for the Israelis to pay Ahmed Bushiki's family an undisclosed amount of money. The damage was extensive. The plausible deniability that Mossad had always depended on was shredded. The agency looked sloppy, careless. The Norwegian investigation revealed secrets. The location of safe houses across Europe, their tactics, even the names of some of their agents. And things kept getting worse. A year later, the Israelis believed they traced the Red Prince to Switzerland, where he was going to meet some PLO officials in a church. Two Mossad agents walked into the church and spotted three men with dark hair and Arab features. They later claimed that one of them reached for a weapon. The assassins opened fire, killing all three. None of them turned out to be the Red Prince. It was another fatal mistake. The head of the operation called off the hunt for Salome. But incredibly, members of the kill team continued to pursue him. They believed they'd found the prince in Tarifa, Spain. They approached the house that their intelligence officers had placed him in, but were intercepted by an Arab security guard. Another firefight. This time, the guard lay dead. After the Israeli said, he pointed an AK-47 at them. Operation Wrath of God was called off. It would remain in a deep freeze for a full five years until it was resumed under a new prime minister. But Mossad's reputation would never be the same. Some even suggested that it had allowed its obsession with finding the Munich killers to distract it from its main mission, protecting the homeland. I asked Robert Baer, the ex-CIA officer, about Operation Wrath of God, and he had a different take on the blowback. This was, a, a, you know, a great act of revenge that was 
deported across Israel, and they just had to go right through the list. And, you know, killing the Moroccan, you know, it's a, it's a setback. It could happen to anybody. But I, I don't, I no way slowed the Israelis down. I think the only thing that slowed them down is sort of reassessment of assassinations. And, and that's a big question. I mean, they kill Yassin in Gaza. Did it truly decapitate Hamas? Uh, you know, that's something you'd have to ask the Israelis. But clearly, I mean, it's, it's like Soleimani when they kill him. I think it had a great effect on Iran. I mean, he was he was the de facto leader of Iran, not Khamenei. Those are those are hard calculations, assassinations. But killing a Moroccan waiter in Norway in no way changed Israeli policy. On the CBS radio network, the Egyptians claimed to have scored significant advances into the Israeli occupied portions of the Sinai Desert. The Israelis, in effect, have admitted this. When Arab forces launched a surprise attack on Israel in October 1973, many blamed the agency for having provided no advance warning. The Yom Kippur War was one of the most dangerous moments in Israeli history and Mossad had appeared to be asleep at the wheel. Hi, this is Stephen Talty, host of Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. The folks that helped me bring you this show, Diversion Podcasts, have just launched another podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Backstaged, The Devil in Metal, a deep dive into the history of metal music, filled with never-before-heard interviews and stories from some of the biggest names in music, including Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Van Halen, and many others. It's outrageous, raw, and surprising at times. Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is out now. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. 
Equal housing opportunity. Spies never forget. If you got a look at Mossad's most wanted list in 2008, a Lebanese man named Ahmad Fayez Mugnia was probably at the top or near it. Mugnia was the mastermind in a series of terror attacks against Israelis around the world. He was believed to be the chief of staff for Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shia Islamist political party and militant group, and was a link between Iran and terrorist groups. Robert Baer said, Mugnia was probably the most intelligent, most capable operative we've ever run across, including the KGB or anybody else. Mossad and Mugnia had been involved in the cat and mouse game for decades. Mossad wanted to kill him, and Mugnia knew it. He was incredibly smart and resourceful. Every time the agency planned an assassination, Mugnia outwitted them and survived. In February 2008, Mossad tried again. The Mossad tracked Mugnia around the clock. He lived in Syria, and those rare times he emerged on a Damascus street, they got an alert. That February, they got word that Mugnia was staying at a safe house in the city. They couldn't get close to him with an assassin on a motorcycle or with poison. They decided on a car bomb. Mossad and his technical experts allegedly began to design, build, and test the bomb. They removed the spare tire from a car's trunk and replaced it with a fake spare that actually contained a powerful explosive. They performed test run after test run. Finally, they thought they were ready. The main problem was being able to confirm when Mugnia would go to his safe house and how he would exit. If you're using a car bomb, you need to know a person's route before they take it. That was tough. Finally, on February 12th, Mugnia headed to the safe house. He parked his Mitsubishi in a nearby lot and emerged from the car. It was the anniversary of the 1979 Iranian Revolution, and Mugnia was there to celebrate. The bomb car was close to the Mitsubishi, but as Mugnia emerged, Mossad's lookouts realized that he was with a bunch of other men, either because these other officials were considered out of bounds or Israel didn't want the death toll to be that high, they called off the hit. The teams stayed in place. They left the car bomb where it was, and they waited. Finally, late at night, Mugnia came out to his car. This time, he was alone. An operative pressed the remote and the bomb tore the car to bits. Mugnia was killed, the lone casualty that night. News trickled out, and international journalists began reporting. A top Hezbollah militant alleged to be behind a series of attacks on U.S., Israeli and Jewish targets has been assassinated. As Middle East car bombings go, this was a small one and in the end only one person was killed. But the death of the man involved has rocked Islamist militants in Lebanon and Syria and it may be the trigger for further unrest. A senior commander of the Lebanese-based Shiite militant group Hezbollah, Imad Mugnia, was one of Hezbollah's most deadly operatives. The FBI wanted him alive and was offering a $5 million bounty. But overnight, a car bombing in Damascus claimed his life. Hezbollah has blamed Israel for his death. Israel denies involvement. But many in the Jewish state and beyond are glad that Imad Mugnia is gone. Hello, I'm Hashem Ahal Barra. Lebanon's Hezbollah says Israel assassinated one of its top leaders. Israel denies it. What will the repercussions be? Ahmad Magnia, one of the group's top military commanders, died in a car bombing in Syria. He was accused by the U.S. and by Israel of being involved in a string of attacks which killed hundreds of people. Here's former Knesset member Danny Yatom commenting. I think that uh, the organization that uh, finally reached him showed a very high skills both in intelligence and in uh, operational capability. I think that uh, the free and democratic world uh, today achieved a very, very 
important goal. Mounia may have been the longest-running target Mossad ever went after. It took decades to get him. Spy agencies tend to have long memories. Their files go back many years, and they trace people's loyalties and behavior from childhood on. But even for Mossad, this was exceptional. As we saw with Mio, some spies never forget. When you look at the history of Mossad operations, targeted killings are a big part of the picture. Israel sometimes uses the agency less as an intelligence gathering outfit than as an instrument of foreign policy. I asked the intelligence historian Keith Melton about this. Is it possible that Israel sometimes turns to its spies when a diplomat in a suit might be a better solution? I would observe that there's a time for diplomacy and there's probably a time for direct action. The problem, I believe, becomes you can believe that either is always a substitute for the other, and that isn't true. There are certain instances in which diplomacy would absolutely be best, but covertly, there's instances in which direct action might be the only choice to do something. Israel uses its intelligence service very, very effectively. They are clear in their intention, and they use their intelligence service as an instrument of foreign power when it suits them. Robert Baer agrees. He gave me some background on other countries who use their spy agencies as tools of foreign policy. It was, it was a new war, and with German intelligence, considering we knew nothing about Russia in the 30s and through the Second World War, nothing. The only people who knew a little bit about Russia were the Nazis, and they were brought into the new German intelligence service. Uh, how useful they were is very doubtful. But it was better than zero. Don't forget that by 46 and 47, it was an existential conflict. And once the Russians uh, nukes, it was even more so. So, I mean, it's like always when, when in the Cold War, we allied with very bad people, hoping they would help us against an enemy that could destroy us. The General. Tartus is an old medieval fort built by the Knights Templar on Syria's Mediterranean coast. This is where a man named Mohammed Suleiman had a vacation house, not far from a luxury beach resort. Suleiman was a general in the Syrian army and one of the main contacts to Iran and Hamas. Israel wanted him gone. Every summer, Suleiman would travel to his seaside vacation home to review files, chill out, swim in the ocean. But it wasn't like he went there in a convertible with the top down. He traveled from Damascus in an armored vehicle with bodyguards. More bodyguards were stationed at the beach house. They never let him out of their sight, even going into the water with him when he went for a swim. After the assassination of Mugnia on a busy Damascus street, Syria was taking no chances. On one trip, it was a typical August day. Hot, not a lot of wind. It was beautiful. Yachts were passing up and down along the coast. People were sunbathing. The rich were heading out to an offshore island to dine at one of the many fish restaurants there. Suleiman was enjoying the beach when another yacht showed up. It was, according to one report, unusually sleek, but there was nothing strange about it. It was sailing closer to shore than the others about 50 yards off the coast. Maybe its owners wanted to get a better look at the houses on the shore. Suleiman's bodyguards weren't alarmed. And when their boss wanted to go for a swim, they went in the water with him. The men were wading into the ocean when suddenly Suleiman sank into the water. There had been no noise, not that anyone remembered. But when the bodyguards pulled him to the beach, they found the general had bullet wounds in his head, chest, and neck. He died soon after. And the yacht, which we now believe was carrying snipers with specially silenced rifles, it sailed away from the coast and disappeared. This is straight out 
of a spy movie. The yacht, the beautiful blue water, the silence. Sometimes espionage appears almost to be a magic trick, a seemingly impossible thing, where you can't tell who did what. Most spy agencies have a motto. A lot of them are what you'd expect. MI6, the British spy agency, takes theirs from the Latin. Semper occultus, always secret. No surprises there. The CIA's is the work of a nation, the center of intelligence, which I've always found bland and vaguely corporate. I prefer their unofficial version from the scriptures. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Mossad also turned to scripture for their motto, or in their case, the Torah, the Jewish Bible. Where no wise direction is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. It's less certain than the CIA's, not as confident. It refers to the fall of the people, a nod to the many tragedies in Jewish history. It doesn't talk about secrets, only wisdom. And that's something that's often hard to judge. Are you eliminating risks or increasing them? Are you targeting the mastermind of Munich or an innocent waiter walking home with his wife? Here's Robert Baer once more. And it's like always in the Cold War, we allied with very bad people hoping they would help us against an enemy that could destroy us. And that's the whole, you know, the moral dilemma for the United States, is can you work with these people to save your own skin? What I like about Mossad's motto is that it seems to acknowledge how hard it is to find the truth. That espionage is a tough job. Not just the tradecraft, but guilt and innocence. That's the hardest part. Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by Stephen Tolte. Produced and directed by Scott Waxman and Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Story editing by Jacob Bronstein with editorial direction from Scott Waxman and Mangesh Hatikadur. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. With the voices of Nick Afka Thomas, Omri Angle, Andrew Polk, Mindy Escobar-Leantz, Steve Routman, and Stefan Brudnitsky. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Archival research by Adam Shapiro. Thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- 
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.